In this excursion in history, we shall see the United States, the great arsenal of democracy, become involved in the great war. It starts while the Battle of Verdun rages on. The time is March of 1916, and you are on an unarmed channel steamer called the Sussex. All of a sudden, there is a tremendous explosion. Without warning, a German submarine has torpedoed your boat. Perhaps you were lucky enough to escape and survive the icy waters of the ocean, but many American passengers aboard the Sussex were not. There was outrage and disgust in the United States with what the Germans had done. And as usual, a note from President Wilson to the Imperial German government was forthcoming. This time, however, the President practically gave the German government an ultimatum. His note said, Unless the Imperial government should now immediately declare in effect an abandonment of its present methods of submarine warfare against passenger and freight carrying vessels, the government of the United States can have no choice but to sever diplomatic relations with the German Empire altogether. To this note, the Germans agreed that they would do their utmost to give warning before sinking in the future. They would allow the crews on the ships to get into lifeboats. This agreement to surface and give warning before sinking became known as the Sussex Pledge. For a while, everything went well, and the German submarines did surface and did give warning. That was until the British developed the Q-boat. Through the periscope of a submarine, this British ship, the Q-boat, looked just like another innocent freighter. And when a German submarine would surface to give warning, a panel on the Q-boat would slide back, and a gun would fire at the sub and usually sink it. So, the Germans would be driven back under the sea and be forced eventually to sink ships without warning. Now, who should be blamed for this? Shouldn't it be the British? Shouldn't they be blamed? The answer is yes, but they weren't. When the Germans broke the Sussex Pledge, the American public looked at it as the Germans going back on their word. It was reaching the point that no matter what the Germans did, it was wrong. In the meantime, a national election has taken place in 1916, and Woodrow Wilson was elected for a second term over the Republican candidate Charles Evans Hughes on a campaign slogan, He Kept Us Out of War. There was still no desire for peace in Europe, however. Both sides still thought that they could win the war. And when Wilson tried to mediate the quarrel in 1916 to bring forth a peace conference, both sides were reluctant to talk. As 1917 started, things looked bad for the cause of peace in the United States. The German ambassador, Count Johann von Bernsdorf, notified the United States government that Germany in order to attain a total victory, was going to resume unrestricted submarine warfare. She was going to torpedo anything that floated. And it was Germany's opinion that it would be in the best interest of the United States if she kept her ships at home. And sure enough, no sooner did this happen than on February the 3rd, 1917, a United States ship, the USS Housatonic, was torpedoed off the coast of Maine. 
There would be no more writing notes to the German government now. Wilson announced the severance of diplomatic relations with Germany. He plainly implied that this actual overt act of war by Germany on the United States could not be overlooked. The situation is critical. The fever for war is on in the United States, and all it would take would be another incident, and Wilson, who wanted to keep the United States out of a war, would be unable to restrain public opinion. Since the war began in 1914, the Germans have had a hard time in communicating with their embassies in the United States and Mexico. When war broke out, England cut Germany's transatlantic communication cable. This forced the Germans to send all their messages via the wireless. And the wireless communications could be monitored by anyone listening. The British now have established listening posts all around Germany. To keep their messages secret, the Germans sent them in code or in cipher. The British Department of Naval Intelligence was started immediately and was set up to break the German code. To the ordinary mind, it seems impossible that a code based on substitutions arbitrarily chosen by an encoder can be solved or as a cryptographer would say, reconstructed by a person not in possession of the code book. Yet, in time, with a sufficient number of messages to compare, with ingenuity, endless patience, and a spark of inspired guessing, it can be done. One only has to imagine how invaluable the possession of the enemy's code book can be. Little by little, over a period of years, the British were able to break the code. They found out that the Germans had a civilian code, a military code, and a diplomatic code. Each was different, and each department used its own sets of codes. On January 17, 1917, the German Foreign Secretary, Zimmermann, sent word to Count Bernsdorf in the United States that Germany was prepared to resume unrestricted submarine warfare on February 1st, 1917. Along with this message to Bernsdorf, there was another message which was sent to the German ambassador in Mexico. Bernsdorf was to forward it to him. On the morning of January 17, 1917, one of the first messages of the morning plopped out of the pneumatic tube into the wire basket at British Naval Intelligence. The man on duty twisted open the cartridge and examined the intercepted wireless from Zimmerman. This message sent from Zimmerman to Bernsdorf in the United States and Count Eckerd in Mexico City was found to be code number 13042. That was a new one for the code department. So it was hustled over to British Naval Intelligence Room number 40. The brain room where the boys spent their time trying to figure out German codes was now in a bustle. Little did the men who were working on the message know that they were going to unravel a historic event. Little did they know that the key to the deadlock of the war lay concealed in this jumble of numbers. One of the men by the name of de Grey Notice that the master number 13042 was a variant of 13040. That was the German diplomatic code. 
And since the message was being sent to the United States, that must be the code they were using. British naval intelligence had already broken that code. The men unlocked the safe in the room and took out the book. One of the best ways to break a code is to find out who is sending the message. So the men worked on the signature, which was 97556. As they used the book, 97556, as if tapped by a magic wand, transformed itself into the name Zimmerman. Going back to the beginning, they now search for the person to whom the message was being sent. And as they did, the numbers began to transform into most secret, for your excellency's personal information. Since the message was directed to Washington, D.C., it must be for Bernsdorf. All was routine so far. Then all of a sudden it became apparent that all was not routine. An unexpected word appeared. Mexico. What could the Germans be saying about Mexico? As they began to work with more interest, the word alliance, and then to everyone's astonishment, the word Japan appeared. Now the decoders looked at one another with wild surprise. Was it possible that Japan, who was with them, was now going to change sides in this war and join with Germany? The decoders began to concentrate. Their scribbling speeded up. The code book pages flipped back and forth as number group after number group began to come alive. It took about two weeks to finally finish the message. And when it was done, it read, We intend to begin unrestricted submarine warfare on the 1st of February. We shall endeavor, in spite of this, to keep the United States neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together, make peace together, generous financial support, and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. The settlement in detail is left to you. You will inform the President of Mexico of the above most secretly as soon as the outbreak of war with the United States is certain, and add the suggestion that he should, on his own initiative, invite Japan to immediate adherence, and at the same time mediate between Japan and ourselves. Please call the President's attention to the fact that the unrestricted employment of our submarines now offers the prospect of compelling England to make peace within a few months. Acknowledged receipt, Zimmerman. Zimmerman had it all figured out. If Mexico declared war on the United States, the United States would not send arms, material, and men to Europe to fight. No, sir. The United States would fight here on this continent. While we were busy here, the Germans would defeat England and France. After they had defeated them, the German armies would now come across the Atlantic and with the help of Japan, carry on the war here and defeat the United States. Once the United States was defeated, Mexico would be given Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico, the territories that she once held in the 19th century back. And Japan, it was learned later, would be given California and Oregon for her aid. England released a telegram to the United States, and the American press printed it for the American public to see on March 1st, 1917. The Zimmerman telegram awoke the people of the United States. The apathy of the Western United States turned into hostility. The Zimmerman telegram accomplished in one day a change in sentiment and public opinion that otherwise would have taken months. To the masses of America, who cared little and thought less about Europe, 
this telegram meant that if they fought, they would be fighting to defend America and not merely to extract Europe from its self-made war. The Zimmerman telegram killed for the American people the illusion that they could go about their business happily separated from other nations. It put them in a frame of mind willing to accept what they knew must come, war. It ended for the people of the United States their age of innocence. On April 2nd, 1917, a sad and disheartened President Wilson went before Congress to deliver his war message. It would last for 36 minutes and be one of the most eloquent pleas for humanity that was ever heard. In his speech, he made it clear why the United States was going to war against Germany. He said that the world must be made safe for democracy. And hopefully, this would be a war that would end all wars. He concluded his speech with these words. It is a fearful thing to lead this great peaceful people into war, into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars, civilization itself seeming to be in the balance. But the right is more precious than peace, and we shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government, for the rights and liberties of small nations, for a universal dominion of right by such a concert of free peoples as shall bring peace and safety to all nations and make the world itself at last free. To such a task, we can dedicate our lives and our fortunes. Everything that we are and everything that we have with the pride of those who know that the day has come when America is privileged to spend her blood and her might for the principles that gave her birth and happiness and the peace which she has treasured. God helping her, she can do no other. As the president returned to the White House, he was thinking of the enormity and the tragedy of the situation. As he was riding in the car with his close friend and personal secretary, Joe Tumulty, the president said, think, think of what they were applauding in Congress. My message today was a message of death for our young men. How strange it seems to applaud that. But it was not for this reason that the president was applauded. It was because these people who wanted peace knew that they would have to go to war to end the war. What, if anything, can be gained from these events that have led us to the great war? Is it the fact that there are times when a person must give his all for something better in the future? 
is it that there can be no neutrality in this world? That the problems faced by other peoples in other nations are our problems as well? Could it be that we must make sacrifices for our way of life in which we believe? Just what are the things worth making sacrifices for? What are the principles for which we are willing to sacrifice ourselves? It appears the generation of that day and age found the thing they felt worth fighting for and preserving. The United States was officially at war with Germany now, and the Yanks had to get into uniform and had to be trained. What a tremendous job. To get the manpower, Congress passed the Selective Service Act, better known as the draft. All men between the ages of 21 and 30 were eligible. And if you were breathing, well, you were in. And naturally, there were songs that went with such festivities, like you're in the army now. You're not behind the plow. You'll never get rich, you son of a gun. You're in the army now. And indeed, you were. In command of the United States Army that was going to Europe was General John J. Blackjack Pershing. He would command the AEF, the American Expeditionary Forces. The responsibility of getting the men across the ocean fell to United States Admiral Sims. He used the convoy system to get the troops across, and he was remarkably successful. Little by little, the great arsenal of democracy, the United States got ready for this great war. Her men, the Doughboys, were ready. The Germans had been expecting this to happen for a long time, and in early 1917, the Germans had worked out a way to defeat the Allied powers before American aid could arrive. The German high command figured it would be about nine to 12 months before the American supplies and manpower could get to Europe in sufficient numbers to make any difference. So before that happens, Germany must end the war. But how? Where will she get the men to fight such an aggressive war? Germany's answer to that was on the Eastern Front. There were about 30 divisions guarding Germany against Russia. If these troops could be freed to fight on the Western Front in France, the Germans might be able to win. Yes, but wouldn't the Germans fear an attack from the Russians if they left their Eastern Front unguarded? No, not if Russia left the war. By March of 1917, Russia was in deep trouble. The Allies had been unable to get supplies to her, and now Russia, with her huge amount of manpower, was useless because it was starving and was low on fighting materials. 
So bad did things get that by March of 1917, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated and a new democratic government took over. The new government was run by a young man by the name of Alexander Kerensky. The Russians should have withdrawn from the war. Kerensky should have been able to see that Russia could not continue. But unfortunately, he was talked into keeping Russia in the war. The Germans now felt that since many of the Russian people were tired of the war and wanted to quit, why not give the Russians a leader who would take them out of the war? Living in Zurich, Switzerland at this time was a man by the name of Nikolai Lenin. He had been in exile from Russia ever since he had made trouble for the Tsar in the early part of the century. Lenin was a student of the teaching of Marx and Engels. The Germans sought out Lenin and they made an agreement with him that they would help him go back to Russia and overthrow the government of Kerensky. In return for this, when he took power, Lenin would make peace with Germany and withdraw Russia from the war. If you were Nikolai Lenin, what have you got to lose? And so it was that Lenin returned to Russia. He organized a group of people into what he called the Bolshevik Party. And then in November of 1917, there occurred 10 days that shook the world. These 10 days would change the course of history. Lenin and the Bolsheviks overthrew Kerensky and took power in Russia. And true to his word, in March of 1918, Russia signed a treaty with Germany ending the war. This was the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. With Russia out of the picture, for the time being, the Germans now transferred division after division to the Western Front for the big push that was to come and to end the war. While all this was happening in Europe, the United States has been training its men. Training requirements and standards of discipline were hard to the point of harshness. Leave was granted only under dire emergencies that arose at home. Drill, field work, inspection, reviews, filled six days each week. First call came at 5.30 a.m. and work went on until 5.30 p.m. After troops had become fairly hardened, 20-mile hikes over unpaved roads were routine. The government gave the troops nothing save their clothing, bedding, and a toothbrush and a safety razor. Recruits from the backwoods were prone to employ the toothbrush for rifle cleaning until the dental surgeons made it clear as to what they were to be used for. When anyone came down with the measles, chickenpox, or mumps, he was kept in his barracks with everyone else so that all would be susceptible to contact the illness and acquire an immunity to it before going overseas. The Americans will set forth on this great adventure expecting to win the war, and that confidence never wavered. The German high command felt that it would be March of 1918 before the Americans could get to France. But the thing that the Germans had not counted on was Yankee ingenuity. The first United States troops landed in France in June of 1917. The Yanks were there. One colonel, Colonel Charles E. Stanton, said as he got off the boat, Lafayette, we are here. Little did he know that these words were destined for immortality. Yet, 
Colonel Stanton was not given credit for them. His boss, General Pershing, was. To the French, who had been fighting for three years, the effect was tremendous. It boosted the morale of everyone. Everyone wished to see the Americans. They alone gave the upbeat to an otherwise dispiriting world. But as far as the Americans being there in great numbers and in great strength, the German high command had figured it right. It wasn't until about March of 1918 that the United States was in Europe in strength of manpower and with great supplies. The Yanks were there just in the nick of time. For in the spring of 1918, General Ludendorff, now in command of the German armies, was lining up things for what he believed would be a knockout punch and end the war. This German campaign will start in March and last until July of 1918. These campaigns will be known in history as the Ludendorff Campaign. It was a tremendous effort by the Germans. With fresh divisions from the Russian front, the campaign was aimed at Paris, and naturally, the best way to go through the line would be through the green and untried American armies. But those cocky Yanks, those don't give a damn for nothing Yanks, they were going to give the Germans quite a surprise. The German advance was checked by the Yanks at Cantigny, Saint-Miel, Soissons, Dulla Woods, and then, of course, there was the tremendous battle at Chateau Thierry. Here, the pride of the German army came pouring through. This was the Prussian Guard. Major General Hunter Liggett was in charge of this district. Here, the 33rd Illinois Division, the 3rd, 2nd, and 26th Divisions were hit hard. The Prussian Guard was really working them over. It was one of the most crucial battles of the Ludendorff campaign. But finally, the Prussian Guard was held and thrown back after General Pershing finally let the powerhouse division loose. This was the 32nd Red Arrow Division from Wisconsin and Michigan. Pershing initially thought so little of this division that he was going to break it up. But General Hahn of the 32nd Division asked for a chance to prove his men. And now that he had it, he took it. When the 32nd Division arrived at Chateau Thierry, all hell broke loose. The machine gun battalions immediately went to work. The 119th Machine Gun Battalion itself fought on the line for a week straight without any rest whatsoever. The only yell that could be heard over the noise of the battlefield was the cry of the machine gunners for ammo, ammo. And the ammo came. The Prussian guard was hurled back. And at this one sector of the line, the Germans were almost in a full retreat. When the French saw what the 32nd Division had done and how the enemy was in retreat, with the Yanks whooping it up as if they were at a football stadium, they nicknamed the division Les Terribles, which means the Terrible. The men of the American Expeditionary Force were not blinded to the hardships that they had to face in France. Above and beyond the turmoil, they understood that their nation was in danger, that they had been called, and that they had to do what they could to end this horrid war. On January 8, 1918, President Wilson, in an address to Congress, summarized what he believed the American soldier had gone to war for. He proclaimed for all the world to know 
why the American soldier was dying on the battlefield. This summarization was made in his 14 points. They were, one, open covenants of peace, openly arrived at, and the abolition of secret diplomacy. In other words, no more secret treaties. Two, absolute freedom of the seas. Three, removal of all economic barriers, free trade between all nations. Four, disarmament. Five, adjustment of colonial claims. Each country would work this out. Six, restoration of Belgium. Seven, the evacuation of France by Germany and the return of Alsace and Lorraine by Germany to France. Eight, people of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were to be given autonomy. Nine, restoration of Russia. 10, readjustment of Italy's frontier. 11, restoration of the Balkan nations. 12, protection of the minorities in Turkey. 13, an independent Poland. And 14, the last and the most important as far as Wilson was concerned. The nations of the world must have a place where they could meet and where they could talk out their differences rather than fighting. This place would be called a League of Nations. And so the world found out that there were no gains to be made by the United States in this war. The only thing that the people of the United States would get out of this would be a better world in which to live. By June of 1918, the German opinion of the American fighting man had changed. Ludendorff's estimation and esteem of the Yank fighter was revised to read, the American fighters must be called excellent. Their spirits are high. The moral effect of our fire does not check the advance of their infantry. The nerves of the Americans are unshaken in battle. And true to Ludendorff's observation, American units were always at the crucial points, and usually they spearheaded a recovery against German attacks. This fact revitalized the morale of the British and the French and encouraged them to stir fresh hope in their war-weary people. The Ludendorff campaigns finally ran out of steam at the Second Battle of the Marne River. Now, now was the time for the Allied forces to counterattack. Marshal Foch, who was the supreme Allied commander of the British, the French, and American troops, now ordered the great counteroffensive of the First World War to begin. This was the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. And again, it was the Yanks that were over the top. They led the way. In the meantime, the Germans fell behind a defensive line that they had constructed, the Hindenburg Line. This defensive line was impregnable, and according to Ludendorff, it would be very costly for the Allies to try to take it. But on August 8, 1918, the British introduced a weapon they had been improving, the tank. This weapon was unaffected by the trenches as it rolled over the tops. The barbed wire meant nothing to them. Trench warfare had come to an end. And on that day of August the 8th, 1918, the Hindenburg Line was broken. When this crucial German defense line was broken, Ludendorff knew 
that it would only be a matter of time until the Germans had to capitulate. In October, many high-ranking German officials recommended to the Kaiser that he abdicate and leave Germany. This would allow the German people to seek peace. The Kaiser did abdicate and went to the neutral Netherlands and lived the rest of his life until 1941. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in the year of our Lord 1918, the armistice was signed. It was signed in the headquarters of Marshal Foch, which was a railroad car located in the forest of Compiègne. With the German generals on one side of the car and the smiling and gloating French generals on the other side of the car, the armistice that ended the Great War, the war that would end all wars, was signed. It was over. And now that it was over, Marshal Foch, the Frenchman, being a gracious host, served champagne to the German generals and to the others there as well. The vintage of the champagne? Year 1870, of course. That was the year that the Germans had beaten the French and humiliated them. Now it was Marshal Foch's turn to rub it in on the Germans. The war had lasted 1,565 days and was the bloodiest and costliest war that had ever been fought to that time. Over 65 million men participated in an economically unproductive activity of organized destruction. Approximately 13 million would die in action of wounds. That was about one in every five men. 22 million, about one out of every three men, were wounded. And of those 22 million, 7 million were permanently disabled. Many men who survived the war would die within a few years as a consequence of their disabilities, while many shell-shocked or gassed veterans continued to lead tortured existences. Twice as many men were killed in battle during the First World War as were killed in all major wars from 1790 until 1913. The number of civilian deaths owing to the war was greater than the number of soldiers' deaths. The non-combatants became the victims of starvation, disease, and epidemics. But now it was over. The most arrogant and powerful military nation since Imperial Rome had been defeated. Now perhaps death could take a holiday. And now perhaps all humanity could profit from this lesson in history. Verily it must be said that the men who would meet to consider the terms of peace faced a grave responsibility. That responsibility would be to see to it that the ghastly loss of lives was not in vain. Lest we forget, lest we forget. <laughs>